Right, hello, um, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined on this uh, early Sunday evening by Paul. Evening, Dan. It's it's uh, it feels strange to be doing it on a Sunday. In, indeed, it does, and it feels even stranger for there to be football on at this time. But it's international football all of the time. And how are you, Cam? Yeah, very well, thanks, Dan. Very well. Yeah, it's. Um, it might have not escaped uh, your attention that we're coming out uh, on a Monday uh, on this occasion um, in anticipation of delays caused in the Suez by the uh, Evergreen blockage, uh, Ever-Ready blockage, should I say. Um, I thought I'd get ahead of the game and, and get a, an episode out. It's nothing to do with the fact that uh, we're, we're, we're all a little bit busy on a Monday at the moment, nothing at all. <laughs> um if we start, gents, with well, we've only really got international football to to go on. Um, but before we we do that, actually, I'd just like to remind everyone that you can catch the Big Football Podcast on Podbean, iTunes, um, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can give us a subscribe, and the podcast will be automatically downloaded to your device of choice. Right. If we do get back onto the football now, and uh, not Harry Maguire's forehead blocking the Suez Canal, um, does there have been some strange results this weekend, I think. Um, certainly the one that, that caught my eye was uh, Luxembourg punking out the Republic of Ireland. Um, already uh, the Republic are now up against qualifying, quite frankly, even though there's only been two games. Uh, Serbia came roaring back to draw 2-2 with Portugal. Um, Although Portugal scored a perfectly good goal in injury time. Yeah, it, obviously it involved Ronaldo, so it was hilarious that it wasn't spotted. It- I mean, it, it, the the whole the thing about the whole ball must be across the whole of the line. You could have fitted three balls across the whole of the line. It was that far into the net, um, but it was quite funny to see Ronaldo throw a strop at the end. Yeah, always, uh, always a worthwhile sight. Um, so I, I was wondering if if you both had like kind of any any views on my theory that that you're going to get wonky results on the international basis um, as we have been doing domestically lately because. It's just a funny old season. Teams are and players are physically and mentally knackered, um, and I just think that some players, quite frankly, don't want to be travelling at the moment because having international football during a global pandemic is a stupid idea. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, you know, like we've said at different times this season with the Premier League, Dan. There's definitely some some unpredictability with some of the results. Um, and I think, you know, the the fact that where are we now? It, it will feel a long, hard slog for a lot of footballers, elite level footballers who've been on the go now pretty much nonstop since since the start of June. Or, you know, the German League kicked off at the end of May, didn't it? Or re-kicked off last season at the end of May. There are some footballers fast coming up to like 12 months of just being constantly, constantly on the go. Um, you've seen that with players, you know, withdrawing from various squads around Europe with with niggles and injuries and muscle strains. Um, I think we've now confirmed, didn't we, that Marcus Rashford and, and Bukayo Saka have both decided they're not going to join up with with England even for the final game of of this uh, trio of fixtures that England have played. Um, and there has been some strange results. I noticed Spain uh, Spain drew didn't they in the first game. Um, and then I think they, they needed an injury time winner to beat Georgia today. So um, I think they drew with Greece in their first game and then an injury time winner to beat Georgia. Uh, the Netherlands got smashed in Turkey. Um, as you've already mentioned, the Republic of Ireland lost to Luxembourg. I I think that might be a bit more just symptomatic of where uh, 
Republic of Ireland are at the moment in terms of the quality of the players they have. They just seem to have, having had almost 30 years of producing really good footballers, they just seem to have hit a bit of a... Um, rot. Yeah, a bit of a rut, a bit of a period. Like Scotland have for a few years where you just look at the side and you think there's, there's barely anyone there that that get in a Premier League team. Um, and, you know, we can think back to Republic of Ireland sides from our time growing up, the 90s and the noughties, uh, where they would have, you know, 15 really good Premier League players, maybe not top, top elite players with the exception of the likes of, you know, maybe Roy Keane, but but they'd have a lot of really good Premier League players in their squads. And I look at them now and I just don't think that's the case anymore. So, um Clearly, losing to Luxembourg is still a very disappointing result, but I think that one might just be a bit more symptomatic of where the Republic of Ireland are. Yeah, I think um, there are a lot of strange results. Um, you know, teams sort of drawing where you'd expect them to to, to perhaps win, and and you know, a few surprise wins in there as well. So. Uh, Turkey handsomely beating uh, the Netherlands um, a few days ago in the first round of games is one that that springs to mind and has been sort of quite widely reported on. But I think, you know, we've made this point around, um, you know, how much football has has been played. And and obviously the, you know, the best clubs uh, play the most games uh, and have the best players and the best players are more likely to be playing for the international teams. Um, so it's it's hardly a surprise that, you know, just, just because they're not wearing the club shirts that a player is, it's not just going to become sort of, you know, revitalised or rejuvenated in, in their, you know, in their international colours. Um, they're still going to be taking that that weariness with them or any sort of, you know, as you mentioned, kind of little niggles or, or little, you know, sort of smaller injuries and strains or whatever with them, um, you know, over when they, when they go and play for their for their country. So it's, it's perhaps hardly surprising we're seeing you know, perhaps slightly more, um, you know, sort of lethargic games being being played out, um, you know, as opposed to slightly more, you know, maybe energetic ones you'd perhaps expect in, in sort of competitive qualifiers, um, given that these aren't, you know, these aren't friendly matches. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably just rolls up into that into that wider point. I haven't, I haven't seen many of the games, so I can't comment on exactly how the performances have been, um, but I've seen, seen some of the results. And, yeah, there's definitely a few eyebrow raises in there. Um, but I think, you know, we, we make this point quite often on this podcast, right? It's And it, it's the same players that we're talking about. And I don't think the, you know, the, the colour of the shirt that you're wearing is going to make a, a drastic difference to your, you know, to your sort of fitness ability. So I think it's it's definitely got to be linked to that, I would have thought. One, th- one thing I will say, um, Paul, is that uh, there's no way that the Republic of Ireland lose to Luxembourg with uh, with Big Mick in charge. No, well, I mean, the second coming of Mick didn't quite work out as they'd have hoped, did it? But the plan was always for him to ease away um, and, and leave Stephen Kenny to to take the job. And he's done very well in, in Irish domestic football. And, um, you know, I, I actually know a couple of, of Irish lads I used to work with and they were all very keen for him to get the job. So, um, it, it, you know, I, I, nothing against him. I, I don't think you can, it's as easy as looking at the manager albeit clearly someone with Mick McCarthy's experience would would give them a bit of a, of a helping hand at this difficult juncture when they've got, as I say, a squad of players that I just don't know how many of them are really kind of international level footballers. Not that I'm saying the Luxembourg squad is, Dan, because I, I can be honest, I, I'd struggle to name you more than three or four in the Republic of Ireland squad at the moment. I struggle to name anyone in the Luxembourg squad. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think... 
obviously we've talked about Mick in recent weeks and the job he's done going in at Cardiff and, and he is just a safe pair of hands, isn't he? And he he's a bit no frills, but he doesn't sort of make any apologies for that. He is what he is. And um yeah, maybe maybe Republic of Ireland just maybe Stephen uh Stephen Kenny is one of those kind of right man wrong time combinations. Uh it, it just at the moment with the players they have you kind of feel as though a, a, a sort of older head might might be really valuable. Actually, I thought it was interesting um, tonight watching watching Albania was that they were they look really well organised. I mean, clearly they're you know no great shakes in terms of talent, but they look like a well organised side. Um, and some of that is, is undoubtedly because they've got a really experienced veteran coach in charge who's you know coached in Serie A who knows who knows the game. Um, we all think back to when uh, when Greece produced the biggest international upset of them all in 2004, and they had Otto Rehagelu again have been around German football and European football a long, long time in charge. And um, there, there is something to be said, I think, in, in internationals when you've got less talent for having the most experienced kind of uh, wily old fox of a coach that you can find, um, and, and maybe Republic of Ireland would would be in a better a better shape with Mick, but they clearly wanted to move to the future, and that was the reason they made the decision. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't think many many Ireland fans would disagree with your assessment, Paul. But they might as well give uh, Stephen Kenny time because they don't have particularly great shirts coming through either at the moment. They're, they're in that little period of wilderness, which they're entitled to have, and, and as you've rightly said, Scotland have kind of had that run and they're now coming out of that the other side. They've got some yeah. talented young lads knocking around and they've got uh, they're arguably the best left-back in the in the world, for my money, in, in Robertson, the captain. Yeah, they, they've, they've, they've got a decent little... Not, you know, I mean, they haven't got 1980s Scottish talent, but you look at the likes of Robertson... And Tierney and McTominay, who were who were all playing for kind of big English sides, whereas and are regulars for the top English teams. Um, although you know Arsenal and Liverpool's league position at the moment <laughs> justify being in that category, but but you take the point, Dan. And and I think you go back again five or six years ago, they had Darren Fletcher, who was by that point you know out at Man United and playing for I don't know Stoke or West Brom or whoever. Uh, and that was pretty much it in terms of people playing regularly in the Premier League. And and now they have gone to that next level where at least four or five of their players are, are kind of getting games in, in, in those bigger clubs. So it, it, it does go in, in little swings and roundabouts. And I'm not saying that this Scottish side's any great shakes, but it's no surprise that they've qualified for a tournament for the first time in forever, um, you know, since, since 98. And Republic of Ireland, in the meantime, have been to... World Cups and Euros, but now they're having a bit of a fallow period. And and the smaller nations, and we have to remember, other than England, the home nations are all small nations in the context of, um, you know, the number of uh, residents and and the number of people playing as as pro footballers. They're relatively small nations. So um, I, I think if Scotland can have a little period now where they qualify for three or four major tournaments in the next, you know, 20 years, then that'll be a good outcome for them and, and Republic of Ireland might have a more of a struggle and have to sort of, you know, suffer through a, a, a painful period. Um, but they've all been there. We, 
I remember the Wales side in, in 93, 94 that should have gone to the World Cup and, and Bowden missed the penalty right at the end um, and they failed to qualify. And then they had probably 15 years after that where they, they weren't really close before before they kind of got another group of players together. And it, it's just for those smaller nations, that's that's how it's going to be, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a you know it's a really good point, um, Paul. You know, both both Republic of Ireland and Scotland have, you know, at various phases, you know, massively punched above their weight, really, in terms of the players that they've produced and, and the international side oh, they've sure. been able to put yeah. together over the last you know several decades. And but like I say, you can't just rely on that pipeline being steady through the time. You know, like I say, you'll always have times where you get a really good crop of players, um, and then and then times where that slightly you know sort of fades off. Um, and you know, like I say, they're both at slightly different points in that in that trajectory at the moment. Um, but I've no doubt in maybe in five years' time, you know, Ireland will have a couple of good players coming through, and um, you know, and it'll be it'll be a different situation for them. You know, Wales have had a similar thing as well. And like I say, these are all, you know, re, you know, re, they are really small countries. So if we compare them to, you know, sort of say some of the smaller Eastern European countries or whatever, you know, no one expects them to necessarily have good sides. Occasionally they do produce, you know, they will they will produce uh, some really good players, um, you know, the likes of sort of Croatia or Czech Republic and so on. And then they'll go quiet for a few years. And it's it's kind of a similar, similar situation with with the other home nations, as, as, as you said. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, just looking at the Scotland side that they're on now in front of me on the TV and you have got the likes of, Tierney and Robertson um, and Che Adams and John McGinn and Ryan Fraser who, who play in the Premier League and play regularly in the in the Premier League for their sides and uh, they didn't have that five or six years ago so it, it makes a difference um, and it, it will just be kind of swings and roundabouts and again not not that I'm telling you Steve Clark's the second coming of the football manager but Steve, Steve Clark's an experienced manager he's, he's managed in the Premier League he's managed in the Football League um, he, he, he knows the he knows the game. He, he had a good spell in in Scotland with um, I think it was Kilmarnock, wasn't it? Before yeah. he got the national job. Uh, so again, I, I think that that right combination of an experienced sort of safeish pair of hands at, at the wheel and and a decent little crop of players just at the right time has put Scotland back back to a position where they can think about qualification and, and Ireland's kind of going the other way. It, it, it will be what it will be. I mean, I don't think. You can't rely on the kind of period Wales had where all of a sudden they had the likes of Bale and Ramsey and, and, and those kind of players because they are really kind of top-level um, top level players uh, that came through at, at the same time for Wales. But um, I think the, the smaller nations can just... They just have to keep managing their resources. And as Carl said, they've probably overachieved compared to some of the smaller Eastern European nations who since... Uh, you know, since the the Eastern Bloc sort of separated in the in the early nineties, how many of the Albanias and the Latvias and, and what whatever might might have been to international tournaments? It's not many of them. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, one one of the the benefits for the smaller nations, and in my opinion, it's to the detriment of of all the tournaments, is the, the fact that the tournaments have been expanded. So there's more opportunities yeah. to get to these major tournaments now. Yeah, that is definitely true. I mean, certainly uh, for me, the World Cup at 32 and the Euros at 16 was absolutely perfect. Um, I didn't love the last the last Euros with the expanded format, and obviously we'll have that again this summer. Um, but at the same time, we, we talk plenty on this podcast about the fact that money makes the football world go round, and, and ultimately that's what it comes down to. 
more of the football, more of the time. More of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, interesting that certainly um, we've we've gone in a, a, a different direction that I was expecting. The kind of analysing um, Wales and Scotland's prospects and, and the Republic of Ireland as well. Another thing I want. Oh, another thing I wanted to talk about is it was nice to see um, Norway and twice this week stand up and say we're not happy with the the, the lack of human rights in in Qatar and the risk to find and I'm sure the, the players uh, don't give a tinker's toot about that but. Um, yeah, the, the, it was nice to see a real stand because the the, the tournament that we're trying to qualify for, the, the the World Cup in in Qatar next December, is not only stupidly timed, it's stupidly located in terms of the integrity of the country and the kind of environment, the the the, the, the weather, the the temperatures, the fact that it's in the middle of a desert, even though it's in the middle of December, and quite frankly. Uh, I, I don't like the idea of a season being disrupted. No, I mean it's 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 un- unprecedented to have you know the tournament certainly in any sort of modern times, and I think even at any time to have it you know in in the winter during the middle of when you know majority of uh, footballing nations and certainly European uh, countries are uh, you know are in the middle of their their normal season. Um, so to take it out of that, and obviously this was all. Extremely controversial at the time of of, of it being, um, you know, of it being announced that it's going to be in, in Qatar, um, ruffled a large number of feathers. I think it's fair to say, and it continues to do so um, for a number of reasons. Some of them you've, you've just outlined, Dan, and you know what, unfortunately, ties into the to the last comment we made as we were talking about the uh, the, the tournaments being expanded. That it that it is the uh, that the money makes the the footballing world go round, and and let's make no mistake. Uh, that that's what that's what the decision to to award it to Qatar was about. Um, you know, I don't think it's really. I think with with other, you know, countries and other areas, you can talk about sort of, yeah, you know, ex- expanding interest in the game and so on. I, I don't really see how holding a tournament in Qatar really achieves that. In all honesty, it does seem like basically, uh, I would imagine a lot a lot of money was put on the table, and you know, the right people were very happy with that trying to use my words carefully here as much as possible, but um, it, it perhaps doesn't seem like it was in, in maybe the game of football's, um, you know, best interest to, to have it there. You know, I've no issue with, you know, it is a World Cup. It should go around the world. So that's kind of part of it. Completely understand that. But um, yeah, it feels like blind eyes were turned at, at lots of factors around how, um, you know, Qatar might actually, uh, you know, host this tournament. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, we probably haven't got time to go into exactly all of them now. But I think, you know, a lot of those concerns, I don't think they've done much to allay any of those concerns in the, I think it's about a decade, isn't it, since they actually awarded them. I think it's about 10 years. Yeah, it um, is something like that. Yeah, but but I don't, you know, I don't think anyone feels any more reassured now, given it's, it's almost on our doorstep, um, you know, in terms of it happening, what, it's next winter, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone feels any more assured about it now than they did then. In fact, if anything, probably a lot less. Um, and, the, and the thing I wanted to, to, to sort of raise and, and flag and the reason for those protests um, is around, you know, the, the, the quite sort of shocking revelations that are coming out of, you know, how they're actually able to, to build the, the infrastructure and, and, you know, and, and the stadiums to support hosting the tournament. And that's what the Norway players and the German players as well um, have both protested against. I believe actually no action has been taken 
by FIFA, which is interesting in of itself. Um, I think they're sort of hiding behind the what, increasingly popular free speech <laughs> reason, um, or maybe they just don't want to get involved, quite frankly. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't believe any any sort of punitive action has been taken uh, that I'm aware of. But yeah, that's that's the nub of the issue of what what the players are, uh, you know, I think rightly kind of you know g- giving a bit of a platform to, um, and you know, depending on which article you read and which numbers you believe that the you know the, in terms of particularly around the the migrant worker deaths um you know are quite staggering and, and and frankly outrageous and also unprecedented you know i mean i think uh you know other tournaments have had you know sort of deaths of workers um you know in, in perhaps less than ideal conditions shall we say well, the, the Beijing Olympics was the other one that immediately comes to mm-hmm. mind, Colin, where there were very similar issues and concerns. If you remember, the Beijing Olympics felt like nothing was going to be ready till about a week beforehand <laughs> when it felt like the stadium went yeah, from a yeah, shell yeah. to a finished stadium. Um, yes. And at that yes. point, I think any any humans lost in the building of that were considered collateral damage. And and it does feel a little bit like that's um, the situation in Qatar as well. Albeit, I, you... you, you uh, mentioned Colin FIFA hiding behind the uh, free speech um, argument to, to do nothing about the players making the protest. And quite right, they should do nothing about the players making the protest. But it's a bit rich of FIFA to suddenly care about free speech now because it's been very clear yeah. that there's no free speech in Qatar. Uh, if you criticize the government, you get thrown in prison. So um, FIFA just needs to sort of work out where it does and doesn't think is important <laughs> in this, in this uh, case. And for my money... Um, you know, a country where the death penalty still exists, um, a country where uh, you can be, um, as a woman, flogged for having a, an affair, um, publicly flogged, a country where um, uh, gay and bisexual people go missing on a regular basis and presumably are murdered by the state, um, a country where these things are allowed to go unchecked is not a country that you should ever be giving an international sporting event with the prestige and the reputation and the, and the, the glamour of the World Cup. Um, because what it will allow is the ruling class in Qatar to turn up at their glitzy stadiums that have been built um, on the blood of migrant workers uh, and show themselves off to the world as a functioning state when they are anything but, frankly. Um, and FIFA should be ashamed that the decision was made in the first place, and they should be even more ashamed that when they finally decided, you know, whatever it was, five or six years ago, that they had to address the elephant in the room at FIFA, which was the fact that a whole organisation was institutionally corrupt. Um, the decision to not reopen the bidding process, frankly, for the last World Cup as well, for, for 2018 and 2022, both allocated to countries where Human Rights um, Watch, the, the international um, uh, NGO that, that looks at human rights across the globe, expressed serious, serious concerns. Russia put on a nice tournament in 2018. It, you know, I thought the tournament itself was, was well presented and, and well put on. But it was a propaganda mission for the Russian state and for Vladimir Putin. Um, and we're about to let Qatar do the same thing. So, uh, it, it, you know, I, I don't I don't want to make this too political of a, of a podcast. But frankly, the decision uh, that was made in the first place was was horrific. Um, and it's right that football speaks up. I just slightly worry why it's taken till now for the game to say, hang on a minute, this this can't be right. 
Um, and I know it's kind of brought closer to home when with the latest reports about deaths of migrant workers, specifically on building the stadiums that the games are going to be played in. I accept that that brings it closer to football. But um, football spent, whatever it is, eight years, nine years since the decision was made with its fingers and its ears going blah, 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 blah when there was plenty of cause for these concerns to be raised earlier. So um, I, I uh, salute the Norwegian and German players who made the protests, but I, I feel a little bit like football as a whole has got its act together far too little, far too late in this case. Um, and to top it all off, you have Pep Guardiola wearing a ribbon, say, supporting free speech in Catalonia, being paid by Qatar to promote their World Cup. Which to me is the ultimate act of hypocrisy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. He needs a, an irony ribbon to go with that as well. I think, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there you go. Um, but no, you, you're right to mention. You know, and actually, um, it's the the Sochi Olympics. Uh, you know, had previously led the way, if if, if that's the right term, in in terms of uh, worker deaths, and actually the Brazil World Cup. Um, wasn't far behind. And you're right to mention. You know, Beijing as well, Paul. At the bottom, yeah. but actually unfortunately that the numbers there are just completely dwarfed by you know the numbers that we're seeing in in qatar that run into the thousands and it, yeah. you know that's just just ridiculous on so many levels that that's happening just to put on a sports tournament um yeah. and just shows clearly how ill-equipped um they they you know and how unsuitable they were um and and really is is you know in in any other situation you think would easily be grounds to to strip them of the tournament um, but like you say, you know, too many blind eyes have been turned and it, it seems only now that, that some some elements of football are waking up to the fact that mm, actually, you know, this sort of makes us look like we've got almost blood on our hands a bit now and, and people are sort of waking up to that. But whether the people, the decision makers are getting there or will get there in time, it, it, let's face it, is probably unlikely knowing how even with the... The new, fresher image that FIFA are trying to portray since, you know, sort of Sepp Blatter was booted out and they've, they've sort of tried to reinvent themselves a bit. Um, I think we know that was also a bit of a PR piece. Um, and I'm not not expecting any drastic decisions to be made because, let's face it, the footballing authorities don't, don't generally ever do that. Really, really good points. Um, it's it's heartbreaking, quite frankly. It, it just is. These, these people get, get whisked into the country to, to build stadiums that they'll got such a big chance of never seeing completed and once they're done they'll be paid a pittance and then sent packing it's uh yeah, it's basically it's basically slave slavery down yeah, it's modern it slavery by another name yeah it is absolutely correct um yeah i mean we'll we'll all tune in we'll all watch the world cup and that kind of makes us um complicit as well but mm. you, you could say that about a lot of things yeah, it's a fair point, Dan, and, and people can probably point at us and, and uh, make the hypocrisy ribbon um, comment as well, because you're right. I, 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 like I say, I had grave concerns about the World Cup being awarded to Russia, but I still tuned in and watched the games and um, enjoyed the football that was on display for the most part in the tournament. It was the, but, best, uh, World Cup. It was the best World Cup since 2000. So, so since, since 1998, it was the best World Cup. Yeah, it, it was a really good World Cup. So, you know... Um, uh, it, you, you kind of have to try and divorce the the tournament from from everything else, but from all the surrounding context. But again, I mean, I presume when Qatar got awarded the World Cup, they didn't have a single stadium that met FIFA standards. <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I'd have to check that out. I might be completely wrong. It sounds like but a FIFA decision. It, it sounds like they've built 
every single one of these stadia uh, pretty much from scratch. And, you know, that's a big undertaking. <laughs> um, that's a big undertaking, even, even when you give yourself 10 years. These are huge building projects. And even when you've got all the money in the world, which is pretty much what Qatar has, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think we've kind of said all there is to be said about it, but it's still to this day. Uh, for about the first five years, Dan, I was still living under the misapprehension that at some point someone was going to say, hang on a minute, we, we're not really going to have the World Cup in Qatar, are we? <laughs> um, but, but as Khan said, it's, it's too late now for a change to be made. It's, it's going to be in Qatar. It's going to be in the winter. Uh, quite apart from all the all the more serious issues about you know slave labor and, and human rights abuses um, and attitudes towards women and attitudes towards gay and bisexual people um, you know th- there is the, the very real concern about the impact it has on the football calendar which as we've already seen this year from covid has has taken a battering um, in any event so yeah lots of reasons why it's a bad idea but it won't stop me watching it Put put it this way, I, I can't wait for Jurgen's press conference just before that that World Cup break. <laughs> I, I don't know if you picked up while we're on the subject, Dan, and before we move on, um, the the other downside of of COVID is that the Acon, the African Cup of Nations, which which had been moved back to the summer, um, and was supposed to take place around the same time as the Euros this summer, is now taking place in the winter again next year. So again, any uh, ACON qualified players will be disappearing from their club teams for a month next December and January, which uh, for those of us with, with prominent African players in our sides is extremely frustrating. Yeah. I, I, I'm at the point now where I'd put a bounty on the African Cup of Nations. If I was, if I was Jürgen, I'd say to Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, I'll get you an extra contract for X grand a week if you jack international footballing. <laughs> And I, th- I think that might be illegal. But... <laughs> well, certainly you'd have to not tell FIFA about it, Dan, or else they'd be coming looking for you. Yeah, when the, I, I, whenever I hear the word bounty hunter, I just think of the New Orleans Saints, and they got away with it for long enough. Let's just yeah, get, they did. Let's just get Sadio Mane and, and Mo Salah. I'm not bothered about Naby Keita. Um, <laughs> they can take him for a month. Well, it, it might well be... I had very much the same, the same uh, response, Dan, because I think, Garner have qualified, so Party is going. Uh, I think Gabon have qualified this time, so Oba will be going. Um, and Ivory Coast have qualified, and I thought, oh, good, that means no Pepe for a month. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got, I, I have an idea. Um, let's uh, just let's just give Sevilla the African Cup of Nations, <laughs> the ultimate knockout team. They'll win it. Let's just give it to them. <laughs> How many tournaments are you putting Sevilla in? <laughs> Any knockout tournament we don't think has a place in the calendar card. Awarding, <laughs> yeah. awarding to Sevilla. Yeah, give Sevilla. Give, I mean, I, I, I'm all for sending Sevilla to the Euros in a few months, to be honest. It would jazz things up. They'd be probably be better than some of the teams there, quite frankly. Yeah, only if Unai can be their manager. <laughs> What's Wander Ramos doing? <laughs> <laughs> Before we fall down a rabbit hole of comedy Premier League managers, um, let's uh, let's move on. Nice, nice idea of yours, Paul. Actually, we're, we're all going to take on the role of Gareth Southgate. Um, it's a terrifying thought for some people. Uh, I'm going to keep my personality. Don't worry. Uh, I, I like the occasional football in Maverick. I like people who can play outside of rigid systems. Uh, but we're going to name our um, respective England 23s for the 
um, for the Euros, and we're going to revisit it when the actual 23 is named, which will be what um, probably after the football season, I'm guessing. Yeah, towards the end of the season. And what we're doing here, Dan, just to be clear for the listeners, is we're naming the 23 that we would pick. This is not supposed to be at this stage a prediction of what we think Gareth will pick. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Although I have still got Mason Mount in my squad. <laughs> well, I've got Mason Mount in my squad 23 <laughs> times. <laughs> uh, so, with it being being your idea, mate, do you want to do you want to go first? Yeah. Well, so shall we do it position by position, Dan? Because I think I think the goalkeepers is relatively easy, and I, I doubt there's a lot of difference between the three others. So, um, shall we debate it as a as a three and kind of chip I, in? in I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I. I so I've gone in the three goalkeepers. I don't think there's any surprises. I think they will be Jordan Pickford, Nick Pope, and Dean Henderson. Um, I, you know, Sam Johnston's with the squad this this time because because Pickford's injured. Uh, with the best one in the world, I think you'd be worried if Sam Johnston was keeping goal for England in the Euros. He's he's a decent enough. He's a very good championship keeper and and probably a a decent enough goalkeeper in the Premier League, but I, I don't think he's top class. Um, not that any of those are top class, but I, I, I think they are the best three we've got, Pope, Pickford and Henderson. I'd lean towards starting Nick Pope. Um, and I think he's broken a record today, the first goalkeeper to keep six consecutive clean sheets in his first six games as England keeper. Um, I mean, he hasn't played any great shakes, I suppose, <laughs> I, I don't think, say. in those games. But, but still, I think Nick Pope's probably the best of the three, but they're the three I'd go with. Um, I, I'm I'm going to come in there and say I actually every time I've seen Dean Henderson this season, I think he's been really poor. I mean, and with how good he was last season, um, I don't know if it's just the the infrequency of when he plays or he's just making more mistakes. I I don't know what it is, but he's looked ropey to me. So I actually think there's a chance that Johnston might go ahead of um of Henderson. But it's only a very, very small one, for the reasons that you. Say, I completely agree with what you're saying that Johnston is a lower mid-table Premier League goalkeeper, an outstanding yeah. Championship one, but a lower mid-table Premier League goalkeeper. Now, with him being so, who third, are your three then, Dan? So, are you are you, are you going Pickford, Pickford, Pope, and and I I think there's a chance of Johnston. Johnston. It would okay. it wouldn't surprise me if it was Henderson at all. I'd be completely unsurprised. But at the same time, when push comes to shove. In May, if Gareth goes off form, and, and we do know that he does go off form, um, I think Henderson does will have to probably stay in the United side or stay playing some games for United because Gareth does seem to take seriously. You've got to be playing for your club team, yeah, for the most part. So I, I, I'll I'll nail McCullers to the mast. I think there's a there's a chance that he may take Johnston instead. Whether he should or not, I, I, I think Henderson's a better goalkeeper. I just think he's had a. I, I mean. Can you, you might want to, to come in there and say that that's not the case. But whenever I've seen him play, he seems to be jittery. And, well, not jittery, but he seems to be make a lot of mistakes and a mistake feels imminent like it does or it did with De Gea. Um, I mean, I've I've been fair, fairly happy with him. I think um, you know it's good to see him get a get a run. Um, and I think you know, obviously, he had a very good season last year with with Sheffield United. I think he showed a lot of people what he can do then consistently um, through a season. And that's obviously what's put him on on the radar um, for sort of England contention as well. I mean, I, I so I I did put Pickford, Pope, and Henderson as the three that that I would take. And I and I think they'll I do think they'll be the three that will that will get picked ultimately as well. Um, but uh, as you say, there's still 
a bit of football to be played. So, you know, things, things, things can and, and very possibly will change. But I, I do feel that they'll, they'll be the three that go and that personally they'd be the three I'd take as well. I don't know if that helps to answer your question or not, Dan, but that's not, not think anyway. <laughs> that's 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 perfect. No, it answers it perfectly, yeah. Um So so shall we move on to defenders? Yeah, yeah. Um so I've I've tried to save myself a spot in defence by only naming seven. So here are my seven defenders that I would take. Uh, I'd take Kyle Walker and Kieran Trippier. I still think they're our two best fullbacks. Um I know they both play primarily on the right hand side, which is an issue. Uh, I know Rhys James um, got a game the other night. I know, obviously, Trent has played in the past. Trent hasn't had his best season by any stretch for Liverpool. And, and at, the mo- at this moment in time, I still think, you know, what they've done for England in the past and their form this season, I think Trippier and, and Walker are the two that I would take. Um, I'm only taking one out-and-out left-back. Uh, It's a choice between Chilwell and Shaw. I don't love either, frankly. Um, I've gone for Ben Chilwell, but it's kind of 50-50, really, um, as to which of those I was going to go with. Uh, And then I've gone with four central defenders, which is Harry Maguire and John Stones, who are undoubtedly the first-choice pair. I've then gone Tyrone Mings as my third centre-half. I think he is better than the alternatives. I think he's better than... Um, the likes of Michael Keane and Connor Cody, I think it's good football. Um, Tyrone Mings, and it's, it's taken him a while to get where I always thought he could go with his potential. Um, but he's had a very good season for Villa and has the advantage, given I'm only taking one left-back, as he has in the past played as a left-back in a 4-4-2 um, when he was at Bournemouth. Uh, so can do it if I if I need him to. And then my final sort of defender um, as my fourth centre-back, again... It, the, the three the three names for me were Eric Dyer, Michael Keane, and Connor Cody. And I just think Eric Dyer can do more things. Um, there isn't a lot between the three of them for me as central defenders. And Dyer can play as a holding midfielder. He could play right fullback as well if you really need him to. So I've gone seven defenders: Walker, Trippier, Chilwell, Maguire, Stones, Mings, Dyer. Um. When when you've got um, Kyle Walker, would you be playing him as a right back or as a right centre back? So primarily, Dan, I I think England are going to try and play four. This I know they went to a three in the World Cup and played a three throughout. I think England are going to try and play four. I think they feel as though the reason they lost control of that semi final against Croatia, and similarly the reason they lost control of the uh, the Holland game in the um, in the Nations League, uh, the sort of year afterwards um, in the semi-final was was because they lost the game in midfield, and it was because they were they were trying to play with three centre halves and, and compressing the the space. Um, so I think they will try and play more of a four-two-three-one. And so my intent in that selection is that you can you would play Kyle Walker as a right full back. That said. If at some point they decide they want to go to a back three again, Kyle Walker can play that position if you need him to. Yeah, I mean, I, interesting because like my, my like I've worked on the assumption that we'll be playing three at the back, and you're right. Obviously, it was four four two today, and they, and as you said, that that's how the the, the semi final against Croatia unfolded. But my my defense is. Um, Kyle Walker, um, I think he'll take Reese James. I don't think Trent will get back in in time. Um, the, the the thing with what, what Trippier might have over James, though, is set pieces. 
um, if if required. Um, I yeah. think I think Ben Chilwell is is better than uh, Luke Shaw, but Luke Shaw is having a really good season. He deserves to be in the squad. Set up a goal tonight. Um, John Stones, Harry Maguire, Tyrone Mings, and I, I actually think Michael Keane might make it. Okay, so have you got eight, Dan? Have you got have you got two I pick, uh, two for each position? Well, pr- pretty much, yeah. D- d- there's one outlier, and when I look at my squad, I've only got five midfielders. But okay, but it's not because I've put Eric Dyer down in defence, but he he plays at the back of a midfield as well. So 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 your your just recap then your your defenders are Walker, James, Chilwell, Stones, Maguire. Mings and Michael Keane. Okay. So I mean, Tyrone Mings can play uh, left back. Yeah, he uh, can. It, it does. Possibly, you you are taking a risk on Kyle Walker, but who he, who is quite physically fit and and doesn't tend to get hurt too much. Yeah. Okay. Con defenders. So I've I've also gone for seven, but actually because Dyer, I I did actually put him as a midfielder. So okay. depending on how you want to work it, so I I've gone. And I was also doing this thinking it would be three at the back, but it's a very good point you make. Obviously, he is playing four at the moment, and I, I guess none of us know <laughs> what yeah. he'll actually do in the tournament. But uh, I did do it half with, with three at the back in mind. But I've gone Stones, Maguire, Mings, Walker, Trippier, James, Shaw. And okay. then seven, or, or eight if you include Dyer. So, spoiler alert for my midfield. <laughs> so, so, so you're, you're thinking of... Kyle Walker in that eight as a right-sided centre-half of a three, Con. I think yeah. is, is where you... Yeah, yeah, down. yeah. Okay. That, that was the thinking, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and then where if he does go at four, I think I think Stones and Maguire are his first-choice centre-back part, yeah. you know, partnership. I think we all know that. And then it would presumably be Shaw on the left, and then either he'd just have Walker as a right-back, or he's got Trippier or James as well, depending on how he wants to play it. And then, of course, if he does go with the three, with Walker as the right-sided centre-back, he's then got Trippier or James to pick as that uh, that wing-back. Yeah. Okay, so what I've then done is I've I've then separated the midfield into two categories, which, again, this is largely because I was picking this this squad for a 4-2-3-1. So I've picked midfield players who I think are going to play in the two and then separated out people like sort of wingers and attacking midfielders into their own category. So I've gone with three midfielders who I think are going to play primarily in the two with Eric Dyer, obviously, as another option there, who's, who I've picked as one of my defenders. Um, and I've gone for Jordan Henderson, who I think is an absolute certificate, um, you know, not only as a uh, as a player, but as a vice captain and as a, as a leader within the dressing room and the squad. Um, Declan Rice, who, again, I think is an absolute no-brainer. And then I went for James Ward-Prowse over Calvin Phillips for my my final um, pick of those sort of deeper line midfield players. Um, I'm happy for you guys to do your midfielders all in one block if you've got them separately or if, if you want to split them out in the same way. Dan, what have you got in midfield for us? Um, so as, as previously discussed, not, not there is the first name down in my midfield by any means, but Eric Dyer. Um, the first name on my midfield obviously is Mason Mount. Um, <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, Declan Rice, Jordan Henderson... I was really finding it difficult between Calvin Phillips and James Ward-Prowse. I think he's had more of a look at um, Calvin Phillips, and I think that's going to get him in in the end. Um, so I, I went Calvin Phillips as opposed to James Ward-Prowse. And um, 
if he's fit again, it's a, it's, an, it's uh, James Madison. I do have some forwards who might be considered midfielders, but we'll come on to that in a we'll minute. We'll come on to them. Okay. Yeah. So, so just recap your midfielders, people you're categorising as midfielders for us, Dan. Deer, Mount, Rice, Henderson, Calvin Phillips and James Madison. I think you're right on Phillips, by the way. I think Gareth will take him. Um, I'd take Ward-Prowse personally. Um, but I just thought tonight, even watching tonight against Albania, that... Rice and Phillips. I mean, okay, in the World Cup, you might, be, or in the Euros, you might be playing top countries, but playing the two of them together in front of the back four against Albania felt unnecessarily negative to me. But that, but there we go. Um, Con midfielders. Yeah, so I've categorised them. I think along similar lines to you, Paul. I've gone sort of central midfield, and then I've just lumped everyone attacking midfield, which I guess we'll come on to. So I've also put Henderson, Dyer, and Rice, who I think seem to be consistent across us, because like I, said, I had put Dyer in as a midfielder. I did yeah. put next to Henderson in brackets Phillips because I think clearly he's playing him. If Henderson doesn't make it, yeah. he wants a reliable backup, yeah. and I think that's probably the one I'll go for. Um, so I've gone, I've gone with those. Um, and then, yeah, the rest are, are sort of, I've, I've classed them as, as sort of attacking midfielders, but I don't know if you want to shout yeah, yours we'll, out first and then we'll, we'll come back to those. So you've gone essentially the same, the same as me into, oh, well, that's a fantastic goal for Israel against Scotland. What a strike. Um, sorry, distracted. <laughs> uh, but you've, you've basically gone for the same as me in terms of number con. You've gone for three sort of holding type midfielders and you've gone for Rice, Henderson and Dyer. Correct. Excellent. Okay, so I've then gone for my kind of attacking midfield group, which is very large, um, which is uh, kind of a combination of people who could play as a, as a number 10 type and people who could play wide. And I've got, obviously, Mason Mount. Where else do you start? <laughs> um, and he had a really good game again uh, tonight as well, I thought. So he, he is playing well for England, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Jack Grealish, who, um, whether uh, Gareth wants to take, I, I certainly would. Phil Foden, um, again, I would definitely take him. Jesse Lingard, I thought he was vital in the World Cup in, in 2018. And that energy and character he plays with, I think he's a good impact sort. I don't think he'd go and start like he did in 2018, but I've gone with Lingard. And then Sancho and Sterling um, as my two kind of winger types, if you like. So I've got... Oh, and then finally, Bakayo Saka, who I would take as, as an attacking midfield option. But given that I've only taken one left back, he can play as a left back as well. Um, and it, particularly if you, you know, if you were to play in the group game against a country where you felt you were going to dominate the ball, you'd have the option to play Saka as a kind of very attack-minded left fullback. So I've gone Mount, Saka, Grealish, Foden, Lingard, Sancho and Sterling. Cool. So I'll... I'll... I'll I'll jump in next then. So mine is very similar, similar thought process to you, Paul. Um, so I've also gone for Mount, Graylish, Foden, Sancho, Lingard, Rashford, Sterling, but I haven't gone Saka. I have gone Bellingham. Okay. Um, just, but I've, I was trying to shoehorn Saka into this, and I think, in all honesty, he probably is ahead of him in the pecking order. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if he goes because of that point you made around the versatility. Um, because at the moment in this squad, there's only one out and out left sided player, yeah. which is Shaw. Um, so I do think Saka has that, um, you know, advantage. Um, so yeah, my, my, my gut is probably that he's more likely to go, but I thought, I'd, you know, it's nice to have a wild card in a squad. 
um, and Bellingham's mine. And obviously he's in the squad this time, so he's clearly in the thinking. Um, well, exactly. Be, and, you know, this is going to be the last squad, isn't it, before before he has to announce it, presumably. Yeah, yeah, this this is it. And, you know, he's playing for a, you know, he's playing in the Champions League, you know, doesn't look as though international football's phased him. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, seem to sort of really, you know, a lot of people commenting just how sort of mature, you know, he looks for his age. Um, and, yeah, like I say, playing for a, you know, sort of prominent team in Germany, playing in the Champions League, playing, essentially playing at the highest level already, right? Because that is what the Champions League is um, and doesn't seem to have phased him. So, you know, why why not, basically? Uh, can't do any worse than when Wolcott went to the World Cup and didn't didn't kick a ball. So, you know, <laughs> Having never played a minute in the Premier League. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's certainly got more pedigree than than that. Um, but but I, I do take your point. I think perhaps Saka maybe maybe is slightly ahead for that sort of an extra spot um, in that in that kind of attacking midfield section. If, and Dan, um, you you've got yours basically as wingers at this stage. <laughs> not not quite no. But what I was going to say, Khan, is if um, if Jude Bellingham has a really good Euros, Dortmund might be retiring his shirt number next. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so with with my my forwards, you could make an argument to play that Phil Foden is actually a midfielder. You could make an argument that Jack Grealish is actually a midfielder. But I'm taking both of them. Okay. But I, I have put them in 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 forwards. Um, yeah. Harry Kane is a no brainer. Um, Raheem Sterling the same. Um, Sancho, Rashford, and. I don't, I don't, unless I've misheard, I don't think either of you put Calvert Lewin down, but I have. So, so I, I've, I haven't done my three centre forward options yet. Oh, uh, sorry. Dan, I, I do have because because we've grouped the 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 position slightly differently. But you've got just go through those again. I do have Calvert Lewin yeah, in right. mind as a, I, I, as a spoiler. I did, I did think I, I didn't think I was this revolutionary thinker. Um, <laughs> Kane, Foden, Sterling, Calvert Lewin, Sancho, Rashford, and Grealish. Okay. Con, um, you've done your sort of attacking midfield group. Uh, Who have you got as, as centre-forward options? Uh, so n- the opposite of a wild card, I've got uh, a guy called Harry Kane. He might be <laughs> with his work. Um, <laughs> and I have also also gone for Calvert-Lewin as the other sort of out-and-out you know, centre-forward um, in the squad. So, uh, and very similar, I've, I mean, I think you've both got Rashford in at various points. I've gone for Rashford as one of what I'm categorising kind of three potential centre forwards. He can play wide and probably will play more minutes wide, but but he could play centre forward if you need him to. So yeah, Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford, and I've also gone Calvert-Lewin. I think Calvert-Lewin um, gives you that something a little bit different in terms of aerial presence. I like Ollie Watkins. I think I think Ollie Watkins is a player who's who's definitely got an international future. He's had a good season with Villa. You know, the the inc- the, the jump in his career has just been incredible. I, I remember watching him play for Exeter um and saying, I think there's a player there. Uh and and I was thinking more about, you know, him him getting a move to the championship at the time. He's obviously he took that in his stride with Brentford, got the big move to Villa. I think we all wondered whether it was too much money, but he's he's done well for himself. He's got himself in the England squad. Um, Ollie Watkins will probably be my my next um, next cab off the rank uh, if any of those three centre forwards wasn't able to go. Um, but primarily, it's Harry Kane as the starter, the captain, and the penalty taker, um, and then Marcus Rashford, who could also play wide, and, and Dominic Calvert Lewin, who is your last twenty minutes need a goal, and you're going to have to put crosses into the penalty area. Um, you know, I actually think. It, 
Um, I thought Harry Kane's goal tonight was first class. It was a good ball in by by Luke Shaw, but the way Kane just sort of manoeuvres and gets in front of the defender for the header and then directs it into the corner, it was an outstanding goal. Um, and I think we probably don't realise quite how fortunate we are because when I look around a lot of the top countries in Europe, um, actually centre-forward is often... And it's kind of symptomatic, isn't it, in modern football? Centre forwards often where you think they just haven't got anyone top drawer at the end of at the top end of the pitch. Um, you know, a lot of them have got great number tens and great wingers, and and how many have really got top draw centre forwards? But uh, England definitely do have. Um, and when he's fit, Kane will Kane will undoubtedly start. But uh, I think Calvert Lewin deserves to go. I think he's had a obviously. Goals have dried up a little bit recently, but he's had a good season for Everton. And he's one of that generation that won the World Youth Cup a few years ago and um, has come through and made an impact on the senior team. I think you could you could argue there's only really Robert Lewandowski, you know, who, who reminds me of Harry Kane. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I doubt Norway are going to qualify, are they? So that's kind of Haaland. Um, I don't know. Then Norway have qualified, have they, for the Euros? Someone's going to tell me I'm wrong on that. I don't think so, but the Euros um, are that big, probably. They probably, <laughs> probably have. Squirreled away it, in a group somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I don't know whether Norway have qualified or not, but um, I think beyond kind of Haaland and Lewandowski, I think you're looking around Europe, who else would you take as a centre, as an out and out centre forward? Um, you know, Lukaku, he, maybe? <laughs> if, he, if he can be bothered, yeah. I think we've seen him. <laughs> I think we've seen them both in the Premier League. And, and while I was always a Lukaku fan, I, I think I know who I'd take, given a choice. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a second he's, he's anywhere near as good as uh, as Harry Kane. But just just yeah. as more as a, as a country that do yeah, have... Yeah. No, no, it's a fair point. Up front. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, certainly not as, as reliable or, or as as much to his game as Kane. Because, I mean, Kane put the ball through for Mount's goal, didn't he, as well? Kind of doing what he's been doing for Tottenham a lot this season, you know, both scoring and providing. I mean, we, we are blessed, <laughs> to say the least, to have someone, you know, of, of, of that calibre. And as you say, there's, there's not many countries that have that. I've just double-checked. Norway haven't qualified. We we haven't missed them. They're not squirreled, squirreled away in a group well, of deaths. Poland or... have, so... So obviously you do have Lewandowski, uh, as Carl mentioned, as Lukaku. But um, you know, uh, yeah, England are very, very fortunate to have Harry Kane, and, and he is he is a he is a talisman as well, isn't he? He's he's more than just a goal scorer. Yeah, I've got a lot of lot of time for Harry Kane. I think he's a fantastic striker, nuisance when he scores against you. But that, what can you do about that? <laughs> He scores against us plenty, Dan, so I, yeah. I definitely feel that pain. <laughs> yeah, I suspect um, in, in comparison, um, your sympathy for him will be quite limited. Yeah, you know, I obviously, you know, it's hard for me to really sort of um, have as much respect as I do for a, a Spurs player, but Kane's just, uh, not only is he a, a top-class centre-forward, who does pretty much all the things you need to do. He's, as you've alluded to, Danny, he's become a much better link player as he's got older. He, he doesn't have to yeah. go and play right up the front now. He can drop into the little spaces. More well-rounded. He's kind of, yeah, he's kind of a mix between Alan Shearer and Teddy Sheringham. He's got a bit of both in his game, and that's, you know, that there's very little higher praise you can give to somebody than that. He's got more her than Alan Shearer, though. <laughs> True. <laughs> Um, I think we've, we've extensively covered that. I think there's some. Uh, I, I think that's. I think our respective squads would go quite close. I mean, I, I don't know who's going to win. It won't be England, but I, I don't know who's going to win the Euros. Pro- oh, probably. 
probably looking at France or Germany, I'd say. Yeah, yeah the, would have the, thought so. The France well, side is a good side, isn't it? And it's, it's going to be difficult to be. I mean, they're in the same group. That's the one thing you'd say with France and Germany. They're in the same um, group stage. Didier Deschamps will be dusting down his Gestapo leather jacket again. <laughs> Ready for uh, another go around. Yeah, I, I would make France or Germany. I think the winner comes from that group. But you never know. All it takes is one of them to have a bad result and. Um, goal difference could come into it, or is it head to head? Or I'm, I'm not too sure. That changes I, every tournament as well. Yeah, it's normally head to head first, isn't it? And and obviously because of the 24 teams, you've got that strange third place qualifies as well in some groups, whereas it doesn't in others. Because I think um, I think Portugal are in the same group as France and Germany as well. I seem to remember that actually yeah, that there was a group of there was the, a, the, the proverbial group of death. Yeah, the what normally one. happens, or certainly used to happen when only two teams went through, what almost always seemed to happen in group of death scenarios is the fourth team who'd been pretty much forgotten about in the group of death qualifying. Yeah. It almost always seemed to happen. Um, and lots of nil-nil nil draws as well. Yeah, I remember the Czech Republic doing it one year um, and qualifying from a supposed group of death. Um you know, yeah, I, it's hard to work out because of all the permutations as to the um, third place teams. It's hard to work out who will play who in the in the second phase because it, it does depend on where teams finish in groups. But I think I think the the main thing for England is if England win their group, which is Croatia, Scotland, Czech Republic. Um, I think they would play the runner up of the group that contains. Spain, Sweden, Poland, Slovakia. So, you know, if you live in a world where England and Spain both win their groups, if you gave England a second round game against Sweden, Poland or Slovakia, I think they'd probably take that if you offered them that right now. Yeah, not that there's any guarantee Spain are going to win the group. No, indeed, as we said, they've they've had two sort of relatively dodgy performances this last week. I I think Spain have kind of entitled to have some time off and, and kind of rebuild after the kind of like 10 years that they had started in the um in 2008 when they won the euros yeah i was i was looking through the the side that started the the last game and it's it's not you know fair to say it's not the vintage that they had you know even sort of five years ago or whatever you know a lot of those players have, have since you know kind of retired or or are about to um and there's there's not many of that you know that sort of around you know was it was it to th- I'm trying to remember which way around it was now. Was it 2010, 12 and 14 they won or, or 8, 10 and 12? I can't I can't. It was remember. 8, wasn't it? 8 was the first Euros. Yeah, it was 8, 10 yes. and 12. And then they won the World Cup and then the Euros again, right? And that was And the... then they went out in the group stage in a group of death in 2014. Yes, well, because every every holder of the World Cup has to go out. <laughs> <in the group laughs> and That's the rule, right? Yeah. That's um but uh, what was Senegal doing? They know how to sort of their own. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's Hungary who are in that group with Portugal, France, and Germany. That's by right. The way. They're, so they're, they're handy 50, as well. Stick fifty p on them to get out the group. That's the tip. Well, we've got them in this in this World qualifying group we're in at the moment as well, haven't we? I think I think as well as Poland, the other team who are you know potentially dangerous is uh, is Hungary. So well, it's not um, San Marino. It's not San Marino. Bless them. I mean, you know. Subject for another day, Dan, and I think we're nearly out of time, but there, there still is absolutely no purpose to England playing a, a supposedly competitive game against San Marino because there was nothing competitive about it. No, yeah, I, I completely agree.
be the, the less international football is more. Yeah. Um, so let, let's just do a deal. Let's just let the top teams qualify, have a mini World Cup or mini Euros for the, the, the stragglers and let them get to the tournament that way. Yeah, so we if, if England won the group, yeah, we would play the second place in, in, the, in the group of death. Oh, in the group uh, of death, would we? Right, I yeah, thought we'd play the second yeah. team in the Spain group. We'd play the second team in the group. Of no, death. it's, it's one, one D versus two F. Okay. Um, <laughs> apparently, reliably, I'm told, and that is apparently meant to happen in Dublin. Um, but of course, we still don't know what on earth's happening with the uh, the locations, do we? I don't think. Yeah, no, there's nothing been announced about that. I think I think they said that uh-huh. um, it's in April that at some point that that's getting announced. Can I believe? Right. Okay. But we all know um, the prime minister is jumping up and down, saying, "Give give us more games." So yes. Uh, we're, we're a far cry from um, Denmark against Croatia at Hillsborough. Uh, one of my favourite ever goals at Euro '96. From can you remember? Who, who, someone who chipped Peter Schmeichel. I'd never seen oh, Peter Schmeichel a, look so vulnerable. It was Davo Shuka, wasn't it? It was Davo Shuka, one of my favourite ever ever uh, non-Liverpool players. Um, I listened to the commentary of that game in the car park outside of Halfords, Dan. Um, <laughs> there you go, a little tip before you. I can't remember why, but we were out and about. My dad was getting something from Halfords, and I refused to go in because I was listening to the game on the radio um, in the days when you couldn't just stream it to your smartphone because such a thing didn't exist. <laughs> uh, and I remember hearing the uh, the, the commentary as the, as the chip happened. Um, interesting fact, and then with his Arsenal career, this won't surprise you, Paul. I actually saw Davos who can miss a penalty at Anfield for Arsenal. Um, did he miss a penalty for for Arsenal at Anfield? Yes, he did. It was a game Liverpool won two 0 It was early in kind of Gerard Houllier's. Um, I remember that rebuild. game. I, I don't remember us having a penalty in that game, but I do remember the game. It was early season as well. It was kind of August bank holiday time. It, it was. It was a really sunny day. It was around my birthday because my dad. My mum and dad paid for me to go to the game. Um, I remember the game. I can't. I can't remember us even having a penalty, but I, I, I do remember the game that you, you're talking about. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, um, he tried to go straight down the middle, and even Sam de Vesterveld couldn't dive over the ball or under the ball or get ice on the ball. Uh, he couldn't fail to save it. I'm just trying. Yeah, to... I... Find find the game. I, I I remember it. I remember it well. Um, Ninety nine two thousand. Uh, yes, it was because it was it was uh, Gerard's first kind of like full season with his um, his kind of rebuild. Yeah, um, and uh, the goal scorers for Liverpool were Fowler and Berger. Yeah, I'm just just looking at the game now. I, I don't particularly remember that, but um, I'm far more interested in proving myself right over this missed penalty. To be honest, but <laughs> well, um, he can't. He came on, Suker, in the 64th minute, so it is feasible that he was on the pitch to miss a penalty. Uh, I've I found a very, very old uh, BBC uh, news page. Um, the three running Reds outplayed Arsene Wenger's men and restored their championship credentials. Well, that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> Arsenal's substitute, Davos Suker, had a late penalty saved. But okay. It, 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 but well, there's a, a, a really terrible typo here. But it could have saved Arsenal as Patrick Berger had followed up Fowler's wonder strike to put Liverpool in the clear. Yeah, I do remember the game. I, I don't remember the missed penalty, but it sounds like the game was pretty much dead by the time he missed the penalty. Well, it's, it, it's 
it's very typical Arsenal-Liverpool in the 90s when we just used to exchange results. We used to win at Anfield, we used to win at Highbury and everyone was happy. <laughs> and then it turned that Liverpool used to always win at, Ar- win at Anfield and Arsenal used to always win at Highbury. Or the yeah, Emirates. yeah, we, we were not very good at Anfield for a long time. Um, and then we had a little spell sort of in the middle period of Wenger's reign when we weren't very good generally. We had a, a spell, I think we went seven years without defeat at Anfield. Um, which was very unusual in some strange games. So there was the the four four was in there, Dan, the the Archivin night. Um, there was a game in there where we got completely outplayed for an hour and beat you two one. Uh, Van Persie scored. That was the year Van Persie finished top scorer. Um, there was a a game in there where uh, I think on the opening weekend of the season where Pepe Reina scored an own goal in injury time. It was a late one. It was Joe Cole got sent off, didn't he? Yeah, Joe Cole got yeah. that game. So I think that that finished two all. It finished one one. That the, one one was yeah. it? It was Hodgson's uh, first match as Liverpool manager. And then there was even the the, um, the very start of Jurgen's reign. There was a three three game that we really should have won and conceded. It was a defender you had on loan. Oh, uh, Joe Allen scored in that game, but no, the equaliser was Stephen Corker. Steve Corker, oh dear. In about the 98th minute, after three minutes of added time, was shown on the board. <laughs> um, I seem to recall, but yeah, we had a, we had a run where we didn't lose at Anfield for ages. Um, uh, we've gone back to uh, just turning up and getting smashed there the last five years. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I don't know what, how we we've managed to get to this point from Davos, who could chipping <laughs> chipping Peter Schmeichel. But one of my other favourite Euro memories was the the referee who completely lost it. Um, I, I'm actually doubting myself whether this might have been a World Cup. Um, that it was, I think I want to say it was Spain against Holland or Spain against Italy. The referee completely lost it. He sent about fourteen thousand players off. He issued about four hundred yellow cards. And there was definitely a game in Euro two thousand where the referee lost the plot. It, it, it was. It wasn't. I don't think it was Euro two thousand. I think it okay. was. I'm thinking Euro two thousand and eight. It was the battle of something. I think, okay, yeah, yeah. and I, I can't, or maybe it was even 2012, I can't remember which one it was, but the referee absolutely lost it and started sending everybody off. And I, I remember, I think it was um, Iron Robin and Andre Iniesta had both been sent off, and they were, they were sat on the steps, like talking to each other, saying, What is this awful <laughs> referee doing? Um, of course, we, we can't talk too much as English people because it was an English referee that showed three yellow cards <laughs> in a World Cup game so, um, to the same player. Uh, so, well, well, uh, we to... um, well, well, Clats made up for it, didn't he? Clats got the job done, and Howard Webb. Clats got, Clats got the final. Howard Webb got a World Cup final. I mean, poor old Graham Paul, who who showed the three yellow cards. Uh, we used to get on at Graham Paul when he was refereeing in the Premier League, but he would be comfortably one of the best referees that we had now. Easily, not not even not even close. Yeah. Like he 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 was the best referee probably of his era in any event, um, and he would be comfortably the best referee of this era because uh, the standard in the Premier League is shocking. Yeah, it is. I'm desperately desperately trying to find this game now, um, but I, I, I'm I'm going to run out of time. Um, needless to say, I'll I'll find it and we we might bring it up for the next game. We'll refer refer to it next week. Yeah, um, I think that kind of covers any other business. Um, Premier League legends <laughs> and not legends. Um, Davos Uka undoubtedly was a fantastic striker, but he didn't do it in the Premier League. Anything else from either of you? Not from me. No, nor from me, Dan. 
Righty ho then. Um, thank you very much, gents, for for turning up on a, a Sunday Sunday evening. Um, doing... I, I do charge double time, Dan. Actually, I think I think double your salary, your usual salary, com may still be affordable. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Um, send, send... higher share of the Spotify royalties. That's all. <laughs> S- send your uh, invoice to Paul, please. <laughs> And uh, yeah, there we go. Thank you very much for your time, gents. And I will catch up with you again next week. Mm-hmm.